Hello everyone and welcome back to the podcast for History, the Journal of the Historical Association. Today's episode is a special feature on the Princes in the Tower and I'm joined today by Dr Tim Thornton, Medieval Historian and Deputy Vice-Chancellor of the University of Huddersfield. Tim is an expert in the late medieval and early modern political and social history of the British Isles, spanning the period circa 1400 to 1650. He specialises in the non-English territories of the Crown and has published extensively on the medieval British Isles, including More on a Murder, The Deaths of the Princes in the Tower and Historiographical Implications for the Regimes of Henry VII and Henry VIII for History which he has also contributed to the blog piece. He's one of the historical experts on the new series of Lucy Worsley Investigates, which brings us to today's conversation. Welcome, Tim. Nice to be here. So I suppose to get us started with this, so how did you first get onto the topic of the Princes of the Tower? And can you provide a bit of an overview for those unfamiliar with some of the details? Yeah, thanks, Gabby, of course. Um, This is all about Richard III, King of England from 1483 to 1485, and the so-called princes in the tower. The fate of Richard's nephews, that's King Edward V and Edward's brother, Richard, Duke of York, they disappeared during 1483, soon after being denounced as bastards and displaced from the succession. So this is arguably the greatest missing persons perhaps murder mystery in British history. So it's hard not to be drawn to it. But there is also a very important set of questions here about politics in the 15th and 16th centuries. In England and elsewhere in the English king's dominions, this was a period of civil conflict, what we normally call the Wars of the Roses, succeeded by one of relative peace under kings Henry VII, Henry VIII, and Henry VIII's three children, Edward VI, Mary, and Elizabeth. But that Tudor century sees some major changes in this country, notably the Reformation. And I was attracted by the challenge of understanding how those societies in transition responded to the aftermath of civil conflict. Fantastic, thank you. And I think it's really important, obviously, to remember this context of the Princess in the Tower, that it does come amongst a time of still political and civil turmoil to an extent that society's been undergoing so much change for the last 20 to 30 years in the run-up to this event. So what have been some of the more kind of like recent discussions on the topic that's come about? Obviously, it's something that has fascinated historians for the centuries since it's happened. Yeah, and it's deeply controversial. The, The first person who allocated really specific responsibility for the death of of those two princes was the the much celebrated lawyer, Roman Catholic saint, and many other things, Sir Thomas More. He was writing more than 30 years after 1483, the time of the disappearance. In that work, he produced an account, the work's called The History of King Richard III, an account that pinned the blame for the disappearance and the death of the princes on a, a servant of Richard III's called Sir James Tyrrell. But where previous sources had been vague about Tyrrell's involvement, Moore, who was writing in the 1510s, added quite a lot of precise circumstantial detail. And in particular, he indicated that uh, Tyrrell engaged two men to carry out the dreadful deed, the murder, Miles Forrest and John Dighton. Now, Miles Forrest was one of those, Moore says, who was responsible for the care of the princes in their apartments in the Tower of London. Now, where does the controversy arise? Well, 
Moore's account of the murder of the princes in the tower has been treated with you know, varying degrees of scepticism over the past century and a half. Richard III's defenders have denounced it as purely propaganda, Tudor propaganda, they call it, contrived years after the event to blacken the reputation of a king whose record, they say, was otherwise in many ways good and who, they claim, had little to gain by the boy's death. Other writers on this topic have preferred to focus on the political philosophy, which is so superbly expounded in Moore's work. Uh, They see it as an essentially metaphorical account of tyranny uh, and its dangers. It's not a, a true history as we would understand it. For both camps, the fact that there are some quite significant errors and omissions in Moore's work reinforce the challenges of using it as a precise narrative history. Even those who are more sceptical of Richard's innocence, even those who want to use the work in a more substantial way to help us write the history of 1483, even they, uh, in the past few years, they've tended to admit that Moore's account stands as their preferred explanation, not because it's backed by clear supporting corroborative evidence, but really for lack of any credible alternative account. Thank you so much for that overview. And I think it's really important as well to obviously highlight, you know, the different perspectives, the different camps that people have fallen into. And also as people who will watch the episode of Lucy Worsley investigate, you can see that the far-reaching consequences it has with Lambert Simmel, uh, Perkin Warbeck that kind of pop up afterwards. And I suppose the nitty-gritty of it is, what is your perspective on what's happened to the princes? Yeah, let, let, let's get to the point, Joey Gabby. Yeah. Yeah. What, what, what do I actually think happened? Well, if, if anybody's seen the, uh, the, the, the programme, which I have to say I think is excellent, they will, uh, they'll understand that I'm very struck by Moore's account of the prince's deaths. I'm very struck by it because what I've established is that there are centrally represented in it several individuals who were still alive when Moore was writing, who were survivors of the episode or members of their immediate uh, families. And then I think most extraordinarily, what I've discovered is that Moore had direct contact with Edward and Miles Forrest, who were the sons of, if you remember, the man who he says is the lead murderer of the princes. And that makes for an obvious direct connection an important potential source for Moore's previously much disputed account of the murders. So just to be more specific, I've discovered, and you'll have seen if you've seen the programme, us talking about this document, when Moore was serving on an embassy to Bruges in the Low Countries in 1515, the messenger between that embassy and the court back in England was none other than Miles Forrest Jr. So that's the younger son of Miles Forrest, the alleged murderer. Uh, This is precisely 1515. This is precisely the time we know that Moore was working on his famous book, Utopia. Many uh, listeners will will know it. 
Also, more scholars believe this is precisely the time when he was thinking about his history of King Richard III. Just as he was composing his account of Miles Forrest Sr. killing the princes, he was in contact with Miles Forrest Jr. So, if I'm correct, then two men that Thomas More knew well, with whom he worked, were clearly identifiable as the sons of the man he identified as the leading murderer of the princes. And I think that's an extraordinary connection between More's account and the events of 1483. That's really fascinating because that does bring a whole other dimension to it. And again, it's not something that we always have a chance to go into detail with on TV or on podcasts or so on, but it's obviously quite important, which you've discussed here, is thinking about Moore's motivation, Moore's role in this narrative he crafts. And as um, just pointed out, this is a really timely discussion because of your recent work with Dr Lucy Worsley on her new programme. So what was it like transferring this discussion onto the screen? It was a fantastic opportunity, Gavin. It really was. I'm very lucky to have been uh, part of that project. Um, working with BBC Studios and with Lucy herself was a, an absolutely fascinating experience. We had the benefit of really strong, informed interest from Kate Hall, who's the creative director of development for BBC Studios documentary unit. Uh, we had Julia Harrington as executive producer. She's got a fantastic track record on this issue because she was one of the commissioning editors for Channel 4 on the, the very famous King in the Car Park documentary, which I'm sure many people will have seen, which so superbly gave you know, a huge audience access to the discovery of Richard's body in Leicester. Uh, we also had a genuinely outstanding series producer in Emma Frank. She's somebody who's won a, a BAFTA recently for uh, Suffragettes, which again, I think many listeners will have, uh, have seen. And I have to say, having worked with her, I can only observe that Lucy is a very professional operator. She's able to maintain a, a really clear view on the topic that's being considered. She's always offering insightful ideas along the way. And all the time, I do think this is important, being positive and helpful to the crew uh, and everybody else who's uh, involved. The challenge in the case of the Princes in the Tower programme was to make a really very complex period and set of controversies accessible while still offering, I think, genuinely new insights. And in that, the programme benefits from contributions from people like um, Michael Hicks, uh, Emeritus Professor from Winchester, authority on all things Wars of the Roses, Barry Cook, uh, the curator of medieval and early modern coins at the British Museum, Turi King, the geneticist who will be known again to many listeners for the work that she did on the Leicester Car Park body, which is now identified as Richard III. So we had some great people to work with. Yeah, I mean, I watched the episode last night and it aired and it's so interesting because of that variety of experts that are brought in. Obviously, the, as you mentioned, the uh, seals which are presented are really insightful and it's bringing new insights to the issue but it's a really welcome I think opportunity to give us a fresh perspective and I'm wondering if you could perhaps just give us a couple of insights or snippets for those who maybe haven't watched the episode yet yeah I don't want to give too much away obviously because no. uh, <laughs> it <laughs> is definitely worth it's definitely worth watching the, watching the program I mean, what, what I especially liked about the program how you know now viewing it again with a bit of distance is the way it allows for 
incomplete answers, evidential dead ends, as well as for the dramatically opposing interpretations which Richard's reign always brings forth. You don't expect easy answers, don't expect a dramatic reveal of certainty at the end. I think the programme's all the more intriguing for that. It's what history is all about, really. Yeah, definitely. And it's always, in a sense, a fresh challenge, I suppose, presenting arguments to the public because you want to obviously make sure not only is it accessible, but you're getting across new evidence, perhaps something they haven't heard before in a really clear way. And I think the episode does that so well. Now, of course, all of this did start with the article for History Journal of the Historical Association, which I mentioned at the beginning. So what was it like working with the Historical Association on this topic? Yeah, um, I have to say the support I've had from the Historical Association from History uh, has been really excellent. Becky Taylor is a, a very helpful editor for history itself. And it was good, too, to be able to offer a more general survey on recent work on Richard III for the historian, the the other journal of the uh, Historical Association. When the article was first published at the start of 2021, uh, as I think you've already mentioned, I was given the opportunity to uh, contribute to a blog on the topic, uh, which was another way of helping to reach new readers with the research and now you're helping with this podcast, which so nicely coincides with the uh, with the BBC broadcast. So one nice bit of news I had recently was that the article was the top download from history, the journal, in 2021, with well over 10,000 accesses, 50% more than the next most read piece. So it really has worked as a way to get some quite interesting what I hope is interesting material across to a really wide audience thank you for that and yeah I think it is important obviously like say these different mediums the articles the fact the journals are both different the podcast the blog and the princes in the tower understandably was chosen in a sense for the series because it is one of those enduring legacies and as you well know obviously when the body in Leicester was discovered and there was arguments for DNA testing and so on and then it's just you know every time there's a hint at a discovery people want to pursue that idea you know can we ever solve this mystery and I'm wondering what do you think are the next lines of inquiry now for those who continue to work on this topic you know what do you think might happen what would you like to see happen I suppose my central line of argument has been that there's a a stronger connection between the Wars of the Roses and the world of Henry VII and the early part of Henry VIII's reign. These were decades in which, admittedly, some new men made their mark, but the vast majority of people who are active during that period were implicated in some way in the difficult compromises that decades of civil conflict had had imposed on them. And often those were very difficult compromises. So uh, my most recent article, broadly on this topic, has been on another of those connections between the world of the Wars of the Roses and the early Tudors, uh, one that's often overlooked, sometimes overplayed, but I think in some ways one of the most fascinating. Uh, And that's the survival into the 1520s of King Edward IV's favourite mistress. So just for those unaccustomed to this, Edward IV is Richard III's elder brother. Edward IV's favourite mistress, Jane, 
uh, she's usually called, but really Elizabeth Shaw. So her survival into the 1520s and the ways in which she provides a prompt to Thomas More for his responses in his history of King Richard III. Fantastic. Thank you for that. And obviously we'll um, share notes when we send the podcast out, but it will be good to kind of unpick some of these a bit more. And as you well know, obviously over the years, we've had so many theory speculations about people who are involved, which actually I think the episode quite deftly moved around. You know, It really did focus on the link with Richard III and you know, future insights, future avenues for that discussion. So it's really welcome. And I just want to obviously thank you, Tim, for joining us today to kind of give that overview and give us that eye looking forward to new thoughts on the topic and obviously for sharing your views on what happened with the princess in the tower. So thank you. You're very welcome, Gabby. It's been a pleasure. Uh, I look forward to, to further, no doubt, animated debate on this topic, which is, uh, which is very exciting. Absolutely. Thank you so much.